good for me here. <clears throat> so we are in uh, now in Genesis chapter 12. We uh, looked at uh, Genesis 11 from 10 through the end of the chapter last week, which is uh, which was basically largely an introduction or lead-in to the whole section of Genesis uh, where we're talking about. Uh, the life of Abraham. So we're we're just really getting started on uh, started on Abraham at this point. Um, so first, by just by way of review again, let's go back. Uh, I know last week was a lot of data and information. <laughs> May not have found it a particularly uh, devotional type of study, but it was necessary that we uh, lay those foundations. So, uh, uh, what do you remember from last week that we talked about? Tom? Uh, in some of your timelines, some of the patriarchs were still available to the younger generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, some of the original patriarchs were in witness to the Ark flood. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool to think about, isn't it? I like thinking about that. That's, that's pretty awesome. You know, we think if we have a great grandparent, we're doing, doing well. These guys had great, 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 great grandparents still alive. And, uh, Man, there's a tremendous contribution that can make and a historical perspective that that would give you if you could go sit down beside, uh, you know, if you were if you were Abram and you could go and sit down beside Shem. And like I say, I don't know if they lived in the same area and could do that, but if he could, to go sit down beside Shem and hear the story of the flood and about building the ark and and being on the flood. Man, just wouldn't that be cool? That'd be awesome. And they had a chance to do that. Many of them. How many of them took advantage of that? I don't know. But what else? <clears throat> Even though Abram was smitten with his father, he was there as, as an appetite. Yeah. 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 He. It seems to me, and it is a little ambiguous. It's a little hard to tell, and commentators kind of go back and forth on this a little bit, uh, whether or not Abram got uh, the the. Uh, the word or the call from God that we're going to look at today, whether or not he actually got that call in Ur when he lived in Ur or whether he got it in Haran or whether he got it in both places. And I believe that I told you last week that it seems to me that he was called twice, that he was called when he was in Ur, which gave him the, uh, gave him the ability to move. As he moved with his father to Haran, he still did it, as Rick said, by faith. So, uh, and then today we'll look more in detail at the course of that call. What else? You mentioned that uh, Terah, uh, Abram's father, was uh, an idol worshiper. Mm-hmm. And when uh, you were talking about that last week, I immediately thought, because I've been reading in Romans, I immediately thought about the passage where it talks about professing to be wise and became fools and changed the glory of God for the fourth of the creatures mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I thought, and realizing that Abram's father was a fool spiritually. Mm-hmm. And maybe he was a great businessman. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Apparently he was because mm-hmm. of the family and so forth and servants and all that. But uh, spiritually, there was nothing there. Yeah. And so he, he would have had to either learn, as, as Tom mentioned, the relatives, learn from these patriarchs or, or from God himself. Mm-hmm. But that influence of a father is, is huge. 
or yeah. in his case, lack of. Yeah. So that had to have a profound impact. Yeah. And we'll, t- we'll think more about that. Remember, in the past, we've talked about this whole thing about we're, we're dealing here with a patri- patriarchal culture. So the influence of the father is even more profound and more significant in that kind of a culture than it is in the kind of culture that we live in today. Okay? What else? But that's the uh, that's the nature of the human experience, isn't it? It doesn't take us long. We're we're only talking here three, four hundred years from the flood, and by this time people have you know, moved away from the true and living God and are worshiping idols and you know and 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 all that sort of stuff. So it it doesn't take long to wander from the you know to wander from the uh, from the ideal and from the values that that we began I with. Yeah, yeah. Talking about terror again. Terror. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I think that was probably some of it. <clears throat> he originally, as we saw last week, intended to go to Canaan, but he only made it about halfway. He only made it as far as Haran, uh, and he stopped there. And we don't know why uh, that. We don't know why he wanted to go to Canaan in the first place. But uh, so, what else? This is good. You remember a lot of things. Something very important is pointed out to us in that passage we looked at last week that will become a dominant theme in the life of Abraham as we move forward. Okay? His wife was barren. (laughs) And it says it so starkly and so forcefully. Clearly, Moses wants us to, wants this to be forefront in our mind that Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Sarai, as she's called at this point, his wife Sarai is barren. She has no child. Okay, and he really wants us to. He wants that to sink in. He wants that to impact us the way he says it. It's very clear. It's very forceful, the way he says that, and and that becomes really Abram's Abram's crisis of faith then uh, over the next 25 years or well, actually more than that, but the 20 25 years that we're going to be. <clears throat> looking at over the next few weeks, it becomes uh, really his test of faith. So <clears throat> clearly, he loves her and he's devoted to her, uh, but uh, she is not uh, giving him a son. So what does that do to a guy like Abraham living, or Abram, we should call him at this point? What does that do to a guy like Abram living in this culture? He's living in a patriarchal culture. He's living in a patrilineal culture. Uh, he's living in a patrilocal culture. 
uh, everything is focused on this whole thing about having children and who's your kid and who's your father and who's your grandfather and who's your... The whole culture is saturated with that. We are, of course, in our culture too to some degree, but I don't think nearly to the extent that they were then. And, and, and uh, as uh, the Holy Spirit has recorded the account here of Genesis, as He's led us through Genesis over the last couple chapters, we've been focusing so much on this whole idea of of children and bearing children and families and tribes and 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 nations even coming and and here's little old Abraham and Sarai and she's barren and it's this is just the end of the line for them. You know, this is just the end of the line. And at some point in Abram's life and, and we don't know where it is, but it's very clear and we'll see it as we go through the story of Abraham, at some point in his life he comes to the conclusion this is it. There's no more after me. And all that I've built and all that I have and all that I am, I will now pass on to my servant because I have no children. Okay. So this becomes, as we will see, a dominant issue in the life of Abraham as we move forward. Okay. Anything else you want to bring up before we go on? If that is so important to Abraham to have children, do you think he prayed daily for that I I have no doubt he did for many years until he until he gave up. Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubt that that was the case in Abram's life. I assume that at some point in Abram's life he just accepted it. You know, I mean, you're 75 years old. You know, at some point you go, it's just not going to happen. Okay, so yeah. I just had a thought here, and uh, you know, Lot went with him, and I just just entered my mind, and he was barren. Lot was his heir, <coughs> and if that's the reason Lot tagged along, is just to keep an eye because Lot's never been a real. Well, we'll get into that next week. We'll get into why Lot went with him. Uh, but Lot apparently is not his heir because remember later we get the story and and. And and uh, and Abram says, well, then we'll let, we'll make Eliezer my heir. So he actually, you know, yeah. So so I don't think he was thinking of Lot as his heir. But we will talk about. It. Well, he may have been, yeah. <laughs> he, he may have been, but I think that there were maybe more favorable reasons why Lot went with him, which we'll get into next week when we get to that part of the of the passage. Okay. Well, let's begin by reading the first twelve verses, since. Uh, since Mike's already baited us here a little bit, <laughs> read these next nine verses in chapter 12, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into our story. Uh, let's back up and just pick it up in chapter 11, verse 31. Uh, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot uh, the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. 
And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and all the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev or Hebron. Okay? Well, this may seem a little strange to you, but as I read this story and meditated on this story this week, my mind kept going back to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you may wonder about the connection there, but and I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings. It is probably one of the greatest fictional stories ever written. Uh, I think it certainly fits in that category. Uh, written by J.R.R. Tolkien in the last century. And, uh, and the story of the Lord of the Rings is the story about this one great ring of power. Okay, For those of you who aren't familiar with the story. Uh, it's the story about this one great ring of power and, and how through what appears to be just a series of, of happenstance uh, incidents, the ring falls into the hands of this little hobbit guy by the name of Frodo Baggins. Okay, He gets it from his uncle Bilbo and, and he gets the ring. And as it turns out, uh, it's really, really important that he do the proper thing with this ring, which in the course of the story is to see to it that it is destroyed because it has such potential for evil. And so he, he now has this ring and he becomes, through no choice or election of his own, he becomes what is called a ring bearer and there are a series of ring bearers in the history the long history of this ring and and Frodo Baggins becomes this ring bearer and uh, originally that's kind of exciting because Frodo really he's really kind of like his uncle he's kind of into wanting to wanting a big adventure he's wanting to go out and see the world he's kind of a strange hobbit in that respect and he but it's really an adventure to him and he sets out but very quickly it turns quite ugly <laughs> and he realizes what a tremendous burden and test this whole thing about being a ring bearer is and there's a scene for those of you who read the books or or watched the movies there's a scene in which the fellowship of the ring frodo and his eight friends who are traveling together uh, to, to take this ring into this horrible, terrible land of Mordor where, they're going to, where he's going, supposed to see to it that the ring is destroyed. Uh, as the, this fellowship of the ring is traveling together, uh, they have to pass through this, uh, what's called the Mines of Moria. And they get into the Mines of Moria and there's a scene there in the Mines of Moria where uh, they, they pause for a while, at least in the movie this is the way it's told. I forget exactly how it unfolds in the book, but... 
uh, in the movie, as it unfolds, they're, they're kind of there in the mines for a while. And, and Frodo catches a glimpse for the first time of his kind of arch enemy, the creature Gollum. And he's carrying, he's having a conversation with, uh, uh, with Gandalf, the wizard, who's part of the fellowship. And he's having this conversation. And, uh, and he says something to this effect. He says to, he says to Gandalf, he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And he realizes how perilous and how difficult it is to be a ring bearer. And he says to Gandalf, I wish this had never happened. And Gandalf says to him, he says, "Uh, so do all who see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And um, I don't know about you, if you've read the stories, if you watch the movie, but that's one, the one scene in the movie that resonates with me. <laughs> I love that scene in the movie. I love that little short, very brief conversation between Frodo and Gandalf where, where just the propensity and the significance and the attendant difficulties of this task of being a ringberry just kind of overwhelms Frodo. <laughs> and... Uh, and he just, uh, if you're not into fiction and you have a hard time relating to fiction, I'm sorry, I get turned on by this kind of stuff. Okay. And, and that's one scene in the movie that touches me because, because it speaks to me of greater issues and issues which aren't fictional, but issues that are real. Well, the story goes on and much later in the story, the Fellowship of the Ring kind of falls apart for various reasons and, and, and there's only really two of them that are really left on, in, the, in the main part of the pursuit to actually get the ring into Mordor and that's Frodo and his very close friend Sam. And as they now are coming, the two of them and other people, the other parts of the Fellowship are off doing other things and they all play part of the story. But, but Sam and Frodo now are getting very close to Mordor. They're approaching Mordor and, uh, and they're just kind of walking along and, uh, and Sam, who's also, uh, his full name is Samwise, Sam just kind of out of the blue, he says to Frodo as they're walking through the woods, he says, uh, I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs and tales. And then he kind of goes on for a moment and he says, talking about children in future generations a thousand years removed, saying to their parents, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And in their conversation, Frodo turns back to Sam and he says, or they might say, I want to hear about Samwise the Brave. And the whole idea there is is that it's beginning to dawn on them that what they are part of, even though it seems very immediate to them, is really very possibly part of a greater story. And it's much, it has much greater implications. And it's the kind of story that people think about a thousand or two thousand years later. Well, as I read this story, this, these verses that we read in Genesis 12, my mind just thinks about that whole Lord of the Rings story. Uh, 
And certainly not because this is fictional, because The Lord of the Rings clearly is fictional, but the, what's remarkable about what we're reading here is this really happened. There really was a guy by the name of Abraham, Abram, <laughs> later to become Abraham, who really lived there in Mesopotamia, and he really experienced these things. And at some point in his life, and I'll draw more parallels as we go on through today, but at some point in his life, God speaks to him. Actually, I should say, the Lord speaks to him. Because that's one of the interesting things about this verse. You'll notice right there at the beginning of verse 1, it says the Lord, Yahweh. And all the way through this account, it keeps calling him Yahweh. And we've talked about the importance of that name already as we've gone through Genesis. It's the, it's, it's the, na- it's, it's the name for God that communicates the idea that He's a covenant God. He's a relational God. And, and so when, when Moses employs here the name of Yahweh to describe the uh, events that unfold here in these verses, he's putting an emphasis here for us on the idea that, that this is the God of relationship. And the God of relationship, the God of covenant has come to talk to Abram. Now, I call him the God of covenant. It'll be some time here before God actually enters into a covenant with Abraham. Uh, uh, Initially, God is just speaking to him and making promises. But eventually, God will enter into a covenant with Abraham. We've already talked a lot about covenants, and we'll talk about it more when we get to that. Uh, that part of the story. But he is the God of covenant who enters into relationships with people. And this God of covenant, this Yahweh, comes to Abram and speaks to Abram. And they actually develop as unfolds. And I don't know where this developed. I don't know if it developed before this incident that we're reading about in chapter 12 or if it begins here and develops over the following uh, part of the story. I don't know at what point, but 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 at some point, in Abram's life, this relationship with God becomes so strong that eventually God Himself calls Abram His friend. Isaiah 41, verse 8. Now, that's, that's pretty dramatic, guys. We've been talking a lot about this God. We started talking about Him clear back in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. We talked about this this eternal being, God, who has always existed, who never had a beginning, and who is so powerful that He just spoke things into existence by the word of His power. And, And we've seen how He's... Uh, how he's been involved in the affairs of man and he's, and, he, and he's done all this stuff and he caused this great flood and you know, all this remarkable stuff. And this God comes down and enters into the kind of a relationship with this man, Abram, so that he could call him my friend. And he talks to this guy who's grown up in Ur and then spent his later years in Haran. He's now 75 years old. And he he comes down and he talks to him and he basically 
comes to him with two things. One, he comes to him with some just really remarkable instructions on what he is to do. And then he gives him some really remarkable promises about what will happen if he does that. So, so he comes down and, he, and, and, and the Lord speaks to Abram and he tells him in, in, in the first part, he gives him the instructions as to what he is to do in verse 1. And those instructions are fourfold. What are the four things that he is to do? Go out from your country. Go out from your family or your relatives. Go out from your father's house. And what's the fourth thing? Go to the land that I will show you. God has just, Yahweh, the Lord, has just turned Abraham's life completely upside down. Have you ever been there? He's just taken Abraham's life. He's just turned it completely upside down. Remember, we're talking about somebody who lives in a patriarchal culture. This would be these kinds of instructions given to us would be upsetting to us, would they not? <laughs> they would turn our lives upside down. Certainly, even more so, a guy living in the culture that Abraham lives in. But first, he says, "I want you to leave your country." Now, when he says your country, I think he's referring here to Haran, not to Ur. Okay, and the reason I personally think that commentators differ on it but the reason I personally think that is because later in the story as we get further on in the story we, we read about people going back to Abram's country okay? and it's clear in the story that when they're going back to Abram's country they're going back to Haran they're not going back to Ur so for example when Abram's, uh, Abram, who later is Abraham, <coughs> sends his servant, who is presumably at this point Eliezer, back to find a wife for Isaac, he sends him back to his country and to his family, and it's very clear that he's sending him back to Haran. So at any rate, he's telling him, I want you to leave your country. And when he's telling him, I want you to leave your country, he's basically telling him, I want you to leave the place that you're familiar with, the place that's home to you, the streets you know, and the people you know. But more importantly, we discover in this passage that Abraham by now has become fairly wealthy. He he and his wife have accumulated a lot of possessions and they've even accumulated a lot of servants or slaves. Okay, So they have a number... He's really become quite wealthy. And he's become quite wealthy partly because he's a good businessman, obviously, but also because he's located in obviously some place that's beneficial to the kind of business he engages in, which is presumably some form of ranching. Okay, So here's this guy... This, this rancher who's really good at raising camels and donkeys and sheep and whatever all he raises, okay? He's really good at raising these things and selling them and, you know, he's really in the business and he's making a lot of money at it and he's making it because he's in a good place to do it. He's in Haran. And God says, I want you to leave all that behind. I want you to leave all that financial security and all that investment in this land. I want you to leave all that behind. 
And then he says, I want you to leave your relatives. Well, why does God want Abram to leave his relatives? Okay, because his relatives are idol worshippers. And so it's important that Abram leave these people that he's lived with for 75 years. All his cousins and brother, his brother and all those... And we saw on that chart I gave you last week all the weird interconnections that go on there just in the immediate family. But he has all, you know, extended family, just all his family. Okay, with, of course, the exception very clearly he's to take his wife with him and we'll see, as we'll see next week, Lot goes with him and we'll talk about why Lot goes with him next week. But he's, but he's basically just to leave all that behind because... He had to leave the country because that was his security. He had to leave his family, his relatives, because they were of the world. They were, they were worshipers of other gods. And he had to make a very clean break from that. And God was calling him to make a break from that. But then he says, leave your father's house. And you're probably thinking, Abram, you're 75 years old. What we have here is a failure to launch. <laughs> right? Okay. Well, this is not a failure to launch. As we talked about in a patriarchal culture, you lived in your father's house. Okay. Now, houses weren't like our houses today, a single family dwelling. Okay. Uh, they had, you know, these large compounds and they would live. The whole family would live in these large compounds, and the and the oldest one, the oldest male, would be the patriarch, and he was he really called the shots, and he was responsible for for two to three or four generations deep would be living in his compound, in his household. What in Hebrew is called the betab, b e t a b. Okay, so he he's he is being told here to leave his father's betab, and when he's being told to leave his father's betab. He's, he's being told to make this unthinkable cultural break that he's still supposed to be really under the authority of his patriarch, his father, until his father dies. He's, that's just the way it's done culturally. And so, I want you, God says, to leave your father and implicit in leaving his father is he's turning his back on his birthright. Whoa. God is asking him to forfeit his birthright by Terah. Now, why is God asking him to do that? Because God wants to become his father and God wants to give him a new birthright, which he will then pass on to his children. So God says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father's house. And that's all. You know, we can do this, right? Because we've got a plan. Right? We've got it all figured out. We know where we're going. We know a good place to take all these cattle. And, you know, we've got a plan. We know where we're going, right? Can you imagine the conversation then? Just 
Yeah, it, it had to be an interesting conversation. I've had some conversations like this with my children. <laughs> but Hebrews makes it very clear that Abram went out in faith not knowing where he was going. God said, uh, God said, you go and when you get there, I'll show you. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that an idol worshiper would have a hard time understanding it. Yeah. Uh, clearly, if Tara had believed God, if Tara had been a worshiper of God, then if his son told him, I'm going to follow God, then he would have been pleased with that and he would have understood that. But, but when... When you have an idol worshiper like Tara, I, I can imagine it didn't go over very well. I'm sure Tara didn't understand. And in fact, we'll get into this later when we get to the part of the story where, where Eliezer, Abram's servant, goes back to find a servant, uh, find a servant, find a wife uh, for Isaac. That might have been a Freudian slip there. I'm sorry. <laughs> to find a wife for Isaac. This whole idea of this whole idea of what does the family think about Abram, I think will... <laughs> this whole idea of, of what does the family think about Abram? Because I have a pretty good hunch the family didn't think real highly of Abram. At this point. Pardon? Yeah, I'm sure it did. And I'm sure he became that kind of uncle in the family that we all have. You know, everybody's got an uncle like this in the family. You know, kind of a crackpot. And I think that's probably what they thought of Abram. I don't know that for sure, but that's kind of how I imagine. Yes. Oh, clearly Abram didn't. Yeah. Next week, I hope, I was going to do it this week and then I realized I just didn't have time. But next week, I hope to bring, uh, bring a CD player and play a song for you that addresses this kind of idea of Sarah and Abram talking about going to Canaan. It's really a, a, just a really moving and touching song. But yeah, I, it was, uh, of course, the servants and all those people and his wife, they don't have a choice in the matter. You know, that's just the way the culture was at the time. <clears throat> but Abraham does not... Really, now, he's going to understand a whole lot more in just a minute because God doesn't just give him the instructions. He gives him some really a lot of palooza promises. Okay. So, he's going to have some promises. <clears throat> but... But as we proceed through the story of Abraham, we're going to see that the promises that he gave here in chapter 12 are just a skeleton. And as we go through the story of Abram, eventually over a period of time, God will appear to him or speak to him on a number of occasions and will put meat on the bones of this skeleton. And slowly Abram will begin to understand more and more what these promises really, really mean. Okay? But, uh, but very clearly, as Abram goes out now, and, and, and Hebrews makes this so clear in Hebrews 11.8. He went out by faith. That's all he had, folks. He just had the Word of God. And there are times in our lives when God asks us to step out in faith 
And it may, in our particular circumstances, be as revolutionary and counterintuitive as the kind of things that God was asking Abram to do here in chapter 12. And the question is, even though I don't know the end, will I step forward and walk one step at a time by faith? I remember quite clearly, and I can't give you all the details of the story uh, for several reasons, but I remember quite clearly a, a turning, a major turning point in my own life. I can tell you exactly where I was standing in a park up here in, in, on the north side of Norman on a Saturday night many years ago, late at night. And God was saying, Rick, you've got to move. Not geographically, but you got to make this move. And I'm going, Lord, everything I've thought and everything I've taught up to this point has said, don't make this move. And God said, make this move, Rick. And I said, where? And God said, he went out not knowing where he was going. And it reminded me of that verse. And I finally had peace. And I walked back to my house that night and I went, okay, Lord, I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea what's going to happen. And this is counterintuitive to everything I've thought up to this point. But you said no. And I'm standing here in this room this morning because many, many years ago, I went forward. When God said to go forward, even though I did not know where I was going. Now, that's just one success in the line of many failures in my life. But I share it with you as an example or an illustration of what's going on in the life of Abraham. And I'm sure it probably brings to your mind experiences in your own life where God has done the same in yours. Or maybe that's what he's doing right now. But at any rate, so God gives him these remarkable instructions. Totally counterintuitive. But then he follows them up with a series of promises. And there are seven of them. You notice them? What are they? First one. I'll make you a great nation. Number two. I will bless you. Number three. I'll make your name great. Number four. And you will be a blessing. Number five. I will bless those who bless you. Number six. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And number seven. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed in you. Now, you're Abram. You're just one guy out of many. You have a wife who's barren. You've just been told by God to pack your bags for a trip, the destination of which He will not tell you is. And then God just rattles off to you in quick succession these seven incredible promises. I'd take any one of them and run. I'd take any one of them. But He says to this guy who has a wife who cannot bear children and he is now 75 years old and his wife is about the same age. And God says to him, I will make of you a great nation. And in modern 
Contemporary lingua, we say, does not compute. This does not work. Okay? Because I don't have any children. Now, Abram has no idea at this point how God is going to accomplish this. But this is God speaking to him. This is the God of Adam and Eve and the God of Enoch and the God of Methuselah and the God of Noah and the God of Shem. This God is speaking to him and God is saying, I will make of you a a great nation. What is doesn't come clear in all the English translations though is that the beginning of that verse, uh, it just simply says in my translation, it says, and I will make of you a great nation. But actually, literally, it should be translated or could be translated so I will make of you a great nation. In other words, all of these promises are contingent on something, Abram. Will you believe me? Will you trust me? And will you demonstrate that trust by doing what I've told you to do? If Abram had said to God at this point, I'm sorry, God, you asked too much. I can't leave my country. I can't leave my relatives. I can't leave my father's house. And last of all, I certainly can't go out without some road map. If he had said that, he would never experience any of these promises in his life. But the first promise is that he would become a great nation. And this, uh, let me back up a minute. There are seven promises I meant to point out also that you can break those seven promises down into two categories. They are what we might call the, the individual promises and then there are the collective promises. Okay? The first three are the individual promises. They are the promises to Abraham as an individual. The last four are what we might think of as collective promises. They are promises to Abraham, but also to a wider audience. Okay? So they are the collective promises. So the first of the first of the individual promises is that he would make of Abram a great nation. Now, Abram is if you'll pardon me putting it this way, Abram's just come off of reading chapter ten. Okay? Remember chapter 10, the table of nations? We read about all these people groups and, you know, and we read about all these nations, but there was one, remember there was one nation that was excluded from all those nations in the table of nations? And what was that? The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. They aren't in the table of nations. And when we read through the table of nations, we notice that. Well, that's just exactly the way Abraham's feeling at this point, or Abram's feeling at this point. <laughs> He's looking at the nations. He's looking at the table of the nations. But he's he's realizing that he's a dead-end street. He's a cul-de-sac. Because his wife is barren. But now God says to you, not only, Abram, are you going to be a nation like all these other nations, you're going to be a great nation. And then the second... Promise is what? I will bless you. you. Okay, don't let that slip by, folks. Because really, when he introduces this promise, he's he's, uh, renewing a theme that we started clear back in chapter 1. This idea of blessing. 
started back in Genesis chapter 1 when God created Adam and Eve and what did he do? He blessed them. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God put this great blessing on Adam and Eve. And the idea that's clear, and we talked about this when we were back in Genesis 1, the idea that's clear that what God is trying to do here is that God wants to fill the whole earth with millions and millions and millions, back in Genesis 1, okay, with millions and millions and millions of people, all of whom can be his friend. All who would walk with him and talk with him and fellowship with him and eat, and he could display his glory to them and they'd worship him and he would bless them. This is what God was all about clear back at the very beginning before the fall is He wanted gazillions of people, pardon the number, He just wanted myriads and myriads and myriads of things like you and I crawling all over the face of the earth that He could just be blessing and blessing and blessing because that's who He is. And then Adam and Eve thought they were so smart. And they took the fruit and they, and they obstructed that blessing. But God is not to be so easily dissuaded. He still wants a myriad of people upon whom He can pour out His blessing. And they keep rebelling and they keep rejecting that blessing of God until finally they get to the days of Noah and it becomes necessary for God to obliterate the entire human race except for one family upon which, upon whom He intends to pour His blessing. He puts them on that little boat and runs them through that flood and they come out on the other side and they come out worshiping God. And what does He do? He pronounces a blessing on Noah and on Noah's sons. And he says he blessed him and he told him to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth again. I still want a whole slew of people that I can bless, that I can make happy, that I can dump my goodness on. Okay? This is what God is about. One of the things He's about is He just wants to do this. And He doesn't want to do it on a person here and a person there. He wants to do it on a massive, incomprehensibly huge scale. So much so that He wanted the whole earth covered with people whom He could bless. And so He says, Noah, let's start it all over again. I still want to do this thing. And so what happens? They rebel. They reject God, not Noah, not Noah's sons. But, but people, as time goes on, they reject, okay? But God is not to be dissuaded. God still has a purpose. To raise up a vast host of people upon whom He can put His blessing. And now he begins to put into effect the plan that he really had all along. He chooses one man. One man out of all these vast nations of the earth that we read about in Genesis chapter 10. He chooses one man and he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. 
you believe me, if you believe me, I will bless you. And he blesses him. Now, it seems apparent that he's that in this particular point, at this particular point, in this individual blessing, it's just a blessing on the life of Abraham. Or Abram at this point. He's probably going to make him relatively wealthy, if he's not already. Or he's going to make him wealthier. And he's, he's just going to give him some, some, really, some really good things in life. And he's going to have this friendship with God. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a pretty good deal. But, he's giving Abram a blessing for a reason. For a purpose that goes far beyond Abram. He's going to make Abram not just the recipient of a blessing, but he's going to make him the blessing bearer. Now you see the connection with Frodo? He's the blessing bearer. He has this blessing. It's not just for his use. You see, the big temptation in the Lord of the Rings with anybody who's a ring bearer, the big temptation is that they will use the ring for themselves. And if they do, it ultimately ends up destroying them like it did the creature Gollum. Okay? Well, that's exactly what happens when God blesses our lives and we lose sight of the fact that we are a blessing bearer. It destroys us. And Abram has this blessing, but God is extending, is, is, is wanting this blessing to be extended out. And that becomes clear in the second half of what he says, because he says, uh, because he says, I will make your name great. There's the promise then of the greatness of the name. And then he says, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and, to you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so it becomes clear that God's still hung up on this whole blessing thing. And He really wants to bless everybody. He really does. And that's why He's given to human beings the ability to procreate. He wants us to procreate. He wants us to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And He wants us to fill the earth with them so that He can have all these people upon whom He can pour His blessing. And so He says, Abram, here's the deal. You follow Me. You do what I say. You trust Me. You walk by faith. And I will bless you and I will make you a blessing bearer. So much so that, that not only will you have a blessing on your life, but you will carry that blessing to others. He says, and you will, and you will be a blessing. And, and this whole idea of blessing then becomes, and God blessing people becomes inextricably woven into the life of Abram because he's the blessing bearer. So much so that if you bless Abram, you get the blessing. And if you curse Abram, you get a curse. So much so that not only would Abram and Abram's wife and his child and children and his servants, not only would they be blessed, 
And not only would Abram's descendants be blessed, but he is, he is such a blessing bearer that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I can't help but think when Abraham heard that, he's thinking Genesis chapter 10. You know, it's a pretty abstract idea to us, isn't it, sometimes, this whole idea of all the nations. But after you've studied the table of nations, you go, God's thinking pretty concretely here. And I'm sure Abram knew this table of nations by heart. And I'm sure that when God said, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, he starts going down through that table of nations. He starts thinking about all those different people. And he starts thinking, I don't even know where they are. You know, we can look at a map of the world now and say, well, these are... But he hasn't... They're just... They're gone. But God says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, that is both a singular and a collective promise. It's singular in that in the singular seed of Abram, that is in Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So this week we're celebrating Christmas. And all over the world today, this week, all over the world, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people are celebrating. What are they doing? They're blessing Abram, aren't they? They are blessing Abram because of the birth of Abram's seed, the Christ. So it is a singular, it is a singular uh, blessing, but it's also a collective blessing because it's clear that it's God's intention, as, and we'll see this as we go forward in the whole narrative, it's, God, it's God's intention that through all of the descendants of Abram, not just the singular seed of Christ, but through all his descendants, that all the nations would be blessed. So it is God's intention, it's God's intention at the outset that through Abram's physical descendants, all the nations of the earth would be sent through the Jews, through the Israelites, that all the nations of the earth, and he wanted to display his glory through the nation of Israel and, and show his purpose and show his goodness and show his love and show his holiness. And, and that's why he put the that's why he gave him the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. And the whole idea was to have this temple and all the nations would come and worship at this temple. And Israel would be kind of the focal point. And through Israel, God would bless the nations of the world. But God knew all along that Israel would abdicate that responsibility. And that's fine. He just wove it into his plan. So we discover in Genesis or in Romans 9, 10, 11 that in God's sovereign great plan, He determined that when Israel abdicated, that He would graft in the church. And so also, as we see in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, we see not only is God intending to bless the nations through the physical descendants of Abraham, but He intends to bless the nations through the spiritual descendants of Abraham, that is, for those who are of the faith of Abram, you and me. So we discover then that not only is Abram a blessing bearer, but you and I are blessing bearers too. Now we might, like like the legendary Frodo of old, we might say, you know, I wish this had never happened to me. You know, it is time when the, when the pagan relatives come around, you know. It's that time of year when things can get tough. Will I lose sight this week 
of the fact that I have been called to be a blessing bearer. That God has given and poured out on my life a blessing, not just so that I can sit here and go, look at me, I'm blessed of God. You know, I have nice kids and a nice car and a nice house and, you know, and, and I have all these nice things and God's been so good to me. And I sit there in my smugness and like Gollum, it destroys me. Or will I recognize that like Abraham of old, I have been given a blessing to be a blessing bearer. And God has poured all this goodness upon me because God is obsessed, if I can use that term with God, God is obsessed with doing that with as many possible people as He can. And He will do it for all those who will bless Abram. Who will bless the seed of Abram. And so... My responsibility in this world is not just simply to be a recipient of the blessing of God, but my responsibility in this world is to bear that blessing to others and to share that blessing with others. And I can do that in a host of ways. But I need to, I need to begin to think very clearly and very, in a very focused way on the fact that, that the blessing of God in my life is not only singular, but it's collective. And it's not just for me, but it is for others as well. And so as I rub shoulders with my wife and my children and my parents and my neighbors and my employers and employers and the people at work and and even people I don't rub shoulders with, Abram becomes a blessing to people he will never, ever, 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 ever see. Many who, most, who never lived in his lifetime. And we can take that blessing that we've received from Abram through the seed of Abram, which is Christ, and we can pass that blessing on to others. That is, in fact, the call of God on our lives to be a blessing bearer. And perhaps, even as now, thousands of years after the life of Abram, we sing of Abram, maybe, maybe they'll put our names in tales and songs a thousand years from now if we are willing to be a blessing bearer. Okay, next week we'll go and see what Abram actually does with all this stuff and how he actually does leave Haran and go on. Okay? Thank you.